Have you ever used the term authentic to describe a local restaurant or the food they serve? What kinds of foods come to mind when you think of authentic eats? Who do you envision cooking that food? Why do you think that particular image comes to mind? Or for you, does the word authentic make you cringe, especially when referencing a particular recipe or a restaurant? Today, we're gonna to talk about the concept of authenticity, especially as it relates to food. We'll examine where the term comes from and how it gets used. We'll think about why we choose the term for some foods and not for others, and we'll question whether or not there are more robust ways we can describe the things we love to eat. Welcome to Kitchen Meditations, a weekly podcast from the Edible Theology Project where we examine the ways God meets us in the kitchen and at the table. I'm your host, Kendall Vanderslice. If you are hungry for a taste of God's hope and healing in the mundane tasks of your everyday life, then you've come to the right place. May these meditations bring you a bit of grounding as you prepare to eat today and every day. Kitchen Meditations is made possible by a generous community of donors. We here at the Edible Theology Project want to thank all of you for your support of our work. If you haven't given to our fundraiser yet, we would love you to consider joining us in bridging the communion table and the kitchen table with a one-time or monthly tax-deductible donation. To learn more, visit www.edibletheology.com fundraiser. Let's get started with a little spiritual mise en place, a prayer to orient ourselves before we begin. In the professional kitchen, mise en place is the process of preparing your workspace for the dishes you're about to make. It involves measuring your ingredients and reading your recipe all the way through so that you understand the full story behind the dish at hand. I like to think of it as a time to prepare my own mind and body as well, asking God to be present with me as I cook or as I bake. Our spiritual mise en place today is drawn from Psalm 86. Slow your breathing, and now as you breathe, repeat with me. Inhale. Teach me your way, O Lord, and as you exhale, that I may dwell in your truth. Six years ago, I took a job as the pastry chef of a Greek restaurant pop-up in Boston, Massachusetts. I was friends with the chef who was testing out a concept based on the recipes of his own family. Each dish was considered an elevated version of more homey Greek foods. Think slabs of spanakopita grilled so that the cheese gets crispy on each side, piping pots of kephalogravira saganaki, a melted cheese dish which we sprinkled with Szechuan peppercorns to make your mouth tingle. I admittedly do not have any Greek heritage that I know of. My qualifications for this position came from my experience working in another Eastern Mediterranean bakery, combined with a love of the flavors of that region and an ability to craft simple but creative desserts. I developed a baklava I was really proud of. Pistachio, sesame, and orange zest filling soaked in an orange blossom syrup and served with a rosehip ice cream. It was bright, light, and unexpected. I could eat it every night. Based on my research, walnuts were traditionally considered the proper nut for Greek baklava, at least in central Greece, but pistachios were common in the northern part of the country. A few nights in, a customer received his plate. 
and threw a fit. This is not baklava, he told the server. Where are the walnuts? He sent the dish back. At the time, I simply rolled my eyes. The plate was perfectly balanced in both flavor and texture, and if he couldn't see that, well, it wasn't my fault. These days, I'm a touch more sympathetic to his frustration. Who gets to decide when a dish gets elevated, and why do some cooks want so badly to fancy up foods, my younger self included? At the same time, who gets to decide what counts as authentic, especially when I had regional research to back up my choice? Why was I so against serving the traditional fare our guests were more likely to expect? And yet, was there actually anything wrong with changing around the flavors of this dish? The question of who gets to make and serve and define foods from around the world is a pretty complicated one. Talk of cultural appropriation is much more common these days than when my baklava dish was made. But where does the balance lie between appropriation, appreciation, and creativity in the kitchen? And how does the concept of authenticity play into it all? Quite frankly, why does anyone care? Drive down any major street in America, and you're likely to find myriad restaurants reflecting flavors from around the world. Sometimes these restaurants reflect the makeup of the neighborhood or city, but oftentimes they reflect a growing excitement of eating something new or different. Even the grocery store aisle assumes we want to travel the world each night of the week. At Trader Joe's, you can purchase an Indian meal, a Greek meal, a Mexican meal, and a Thai meal all by walking down a single side of a single aisle. If you ask the average American what American food is, they're likely to say something like hamburgers or Thanksgiving turkey or apple pie. Not because these foods make up the core of the average American's diet, but because they are icons of Americana. They tell a story about grilling out in the backyard on the 4th of July or a gathering with family around the table on Thanksgiving Day. In truth, many Americans feel very little connection to any particular cuisine. Our entire lives, we've had a world of flavors open to us, eating tacos, pasta, rice, and beans all in the same week, eating fusions of foods from multiple regions, mixing spices grown all around the world, and sometimes visiting the authentic Mexican or Vietnamese spot down the street. In the absence of an easily defined food culture of our own, Americans hold a peculiar longing for authenticity in the foods of others as well as high expectations for how that authenticity will be performed. Food scholar Krishnendu Ray writes a lot about the dynamics that shape American perceptions of food, especially the ways racial and ethnic identities impact the value placed on different kinds of foods. In his book, The Ethnic Restaurateur, Ray writes of a Vietnamese restaurant owner who says his restaurant does better when he doesn't post any English signs inside the place. When American visitors come to eat Vietnamese food, he says, they want to feel like the food hasn't been sullied by American culture. They want a truly authentic experience. The question is, authentic to who? The quest for authentic food demands two things. It demands a food that can be statically defined and consumed by the person in the cultural majority. And it demands a cook who can stand in as a representative of the culture the food came from. Ray writes that an immigrant who enters the American national space, especially a visibly different immigrant, has been turned into an ethnic, approximate but subordinate other. 
someone who doesn't quite belong, but who possesses something others want to be a part of. While the French or the German or the Canadian transplant is treated as someone foreign, and their food treated as such too, those who are visibly different yet immersed in American life receive the label ethnic instead. This is who, Ray says, is presumed to carry the promise of cultural authenticity. In the end, the burden of authenticity serves as a means for consumers to say, you belong here on my terms, rather than an invitation to share the creative journey of the foods that make this cook feel most at home. In her book, Exotic Appetites, philosopher Lisa Heldka writes that eating the foods of other cultures brings us into contact with cultural differences in a valuable way. If you've ever had the pleasure of enjoying the cooking of a friend who hails from a different place than you, or if you've ever been to an international food festival, then you know what a gift it can be to connect foods to the people who make them. Our dining can introduce us to the flavors and textures of people around the world, and those foods open up stories about religion, about family, and about hospitality. Perhaps you're thinking you want to eat authentic foods as a way to honor tradition, to honor the people and the culture those foods come from. But all too often, this quest for authenticity brings consumers to what Heldke calls cultural food colonialism, a practice of consuming and enjoying the foods of others while disconnecting those dishes from the very people who created them, as well as the stories of displacement, famine, and resilience that those dishes might tell. One great example of this disconnect is a news story that made the rounds in 2014. A group of politicians blocked the passing of an immigration bill that would have supported Mexican immigrants arriving in the United States. To celebrate their win, these politicians went out to dinner at a local cantina serving authentic tacos and Mexican beer. It might seem wild that the politicians failed to see the irony of this move, but that's precisely what cultural food colonialism allows us to do. It allows us to disconnect the foods we enjoy from the struggles and the triumphs of the people who brought the flavors to our part of the world. It allows us to get a taste of another person's home without any responsibility towards the people themselves. At the root of cultural food colonialism is a seemingly innocuous assumption. The assumption that food is static and unchanging. That a Greek baklava is and always has been made with walnuts. That a bowl of pho is sullied if the chef makes himself at home in American culture. Authenticity relies on the false assumption that cultures and food traditions never evolve, and in turn it overlooks the incredible stories about people and places that this evolution tells. Cooking techniques and flavors develop as people encounter and integrate new ingredients or utilize new kitchen tools. For instance, it was the French introduction of the baguette to Vietnam that brought forth the classic banh mi. This sandwich tells the story of French colonialism and the European superiority that the Europeans claimed to possess. But it also tells the story of Vietnamese creativity in the face of occupation. The cross-pollination of cuisines sings of the creativity of humanity. And it's in this dynamism that food tells the stories of the people who make it. These stories celebrate the goodness that can arise out of heartbreaking situations. Put in simpler terms, these foods and the stories behind them can help us better understand the experience of all of our neighbors 
and to see the creativity of God reflected in all who are made in God's image. Instead of searching for authentic food, let's reframe a little bit. Let's search for the food stories behind the foods we love to eat, the complex tales of the people and places that brought each ingredient to our plate. Inhale, teach me your way, O Lord. Exhale, that I may dwell in your truth. Our kitchen tip today is for those who want to honor and appreciate the foods of others without falling into the trap of cultural appropriation or culinary colonialism. It's a pretty easy tip, too. Read cookbooks. A cookbook is not just a collection of recipes. The recipes themselves, as well as the narrative woven into the book, share the complex stories we're talking about all season long. They are a great way to experience a dish on the terms of the person who developed it. It can get pretty expensive to collect cookbooks, I'll admit, but many libraries have extensive collections. Consider turning your supper club into a cookbook club, crafting a meal from a different book each time you meet. Some of my favorites are Eric Junho Kim's book, Korean American, and, well, just about anything by Yota Madolenghi. A book I'm looking forward to is Diasporican by Ileana Masonette, releasing next week. As you cook, pay attention to the stories of movement, resilience, and creativity woven into each recipe. And now to close, a prayer in celebration of food's dynamic nature. God of chilies and chocolates, pistachios and walnuts, of cardamom and more, thank you for the delight of tongues and noses that enjoy food. Teach us to appreciate the complex tales our foods can tell that we may honor the creativity of your image bearers who turn these ingredients into so much more. Amen. Kitchen Meditations is brought to you by the Edible Theology Project, where the communion table meets the dinner table. We encourage you to discuss this episode around the table with your spouse, small group, or friends. Need some help getting into that rhythm? Sign up for our weekly newsletter at www.edibletheology.com and you'll get discussion questions and a recipe delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our intro music is by Josh Garrels. A huge thank you to my Edible Theology team who made this podcast possible, especially to our producer, Jason Rugg. We would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or Spotify. Then share this episode with your friends. Your help ensures that others discover this podcast, too.